This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Barely. Um, I struggled a bit with this talk to put it together in a way that um, makes sense and is comprehensible. And then uh, from a different perspective, uh, we can appreciate the dangers of that. Uh, And the impetus for this talk uh, comes from um, a a comment that's been made relatively often um, about how um, talks by teachers, particularly talks that use koans, uh, are um, not very accessible, that I don't understand them. And wouldn't it be much easier for everybody if uh, they were explained in such a way that I would understand them? Um, And, I mean, there's a set piece in response to that, but I wanted to uh, offer more than that. Um, First, there's an underlying assumption that if we can grasp what is being said and understand it, given what this practice is about, the assumption is, if I understand it and make it mine in that sense um, and make it usable, that my life will change. And from a kind of a fundamental viewpoint, will address my pain, my suffering. Um, And... um, And I can, therefore, get it for myself and use it in a way that um, allows me to maintain my life, to protect myself in the way that I've become accustomed to, uh, and my sense of self, and be safe, and yet understand and be clear on what is being said. And... That's an assumption um, that we often make in life. But this is spiritual practice. And that assumption has some value. I'm not discarding that. Um, But this is spiritual practice. And it's a high bar. The, The bar here is awakening to your fundamental humanness, to, um, to who you are. And the Buddha's awakening can be articulated or understood in many different ways, but one way is is what he allegedly said on his awakening, that all beings are whole and complete from the beginning. All of reality, everything, so to speak, is whole and complete from the beginning. There's nothing lacking in any of us. And that is far from our usual way of understanding ourselves and others. And it's far from how we act, usually, in this life, and it's far from how the world around us acts and supports in its actions the separation, the disagreements, the 
pains that come out of um, the distance we have from one another and from things and from ourself. Koans and the teachings make perfect sense. It's simply when there is no gap between you, yourself, and the koan. When the distance between you and anything narrows and perhaps vanishes. Then you, as your separate sense of um, self-referential self, vanishes as well. Now, those are the words that describe it. That's not it. But I have to start someplace with this. And what also vanishes, along with your sense of separate self, is your suffering. And it's not that you're not here. You're not going anyplace. Uh, But you, yourself, can come forth with the understanding that passes understanding, that is so far beyond understanding, it is your direct experience, which manifests as wholeness. Wholeness not just as your own self, but wholeness with nothing excluded, and at the same time, there you are. And it's entwined with the specifics of what we call this moment. So it's always relative in this world to this particular moment and set of circumstances. It's not some idea. Ideation. It's not some idea of wholeness. It's in the specifics of where you are, in the things of where you are, knowing that now knowing that there are no permanent fixed things. And this is the fundamental challenge of Zen practice, is that all of us enter and continue for a long time with the reference system that we come in with. And what's the reference system? It's self-referential. Um, and, it, and that self-referential system, uh, in spite of our intention, uh, tends to cause harm. Some of that harm is visible, some less so. And by the way, I, I say this from time to time as I look. Uh, I'm going to ask that each of us, if possible, make eye contact with me. And so we see how the communication is going. Um, and that's part of the intimacy. Um, and that, that's an important part. It's one of the reasons the start of this talk, I asked some people behind the post to, to move so that we can see each other, which is the point, more than see each other. Um, and so this challenge is often missed. And that makes sense because people come to spiritual practice and Zen practice for all sorts of different reasons in the beginning. Almost always because in some way they're dissatisfied with their life and they're looking for something more. But even sometimes that isn't articulated within a given person. Uh, sometimes it's just because I'm here and it seems right. and uh, Everyone has their own perspective of, of why they're doing this practice, especially at the beginning. But it's almost always self-referential, which is not bad. It's we need ourself. And look, it's bringing us to investigate that self. That's all we've got. So understand that in practice, practice is always from the perspective of a self. Uh, so it's not bad. We're not trying to get rid of anything. Uh, the self will always be there. 
but the self can be seen through as to what it fundamentally is and is not. Um, and it fundamentally is not. <laughs> fundamentally. Uh, relatively, yes, we have a fine self. It's just fine. But if that's all our understanding is, then look at the world, look at your own life, and look where there is challenge and disagreement and pain. And usually you'll find there's an association between our sense of ourself and our preoccupation with ourself and our thoughts and our feelings and our judgments and our intelligence and our cleverness and the difficulty that that causes. But that's usually all we know. Um, so this particular path invites us to see something larger than that without disregarding really any of it, but to see something fundamentally larger than that. Or you can turn it the other way, smaller than that, to see that nothing is, ex- is excluded, small or large, in you yourself. That's the key part. That's in you yourself. It's not some idea... It's not some magical thing. It's very functional. It is you yourself. So we start with our smallness and a particular way of assuming that we, our sense of self, is the center of the universe. And, you know, I'm phrasing that in a certain way, but you can phrase it in any way that applies to you or you can disregard it if you wish. But... That's, from my perspective, what people bring to practice. And it's enough. But the practice is engaged in an overthrowing of our so-called normal way of how we understand ourselves and each other. It's revolutionary. And I've said a number of times, I've quoted Trump or Rinpoche, saying, you know, if you have any other choice other than to do this practice, take that. <laughs> because this is going to turn you upside down. And uh, you're going to find yourself in a, facing yourself in ways that you never thought you would. And um, that's not meant to scare you away. That's meant to encourage you, actually, if you want your life to change. Because it's possible to come into this practice and do the practice, and nothing happens except your ideas about the practice change. And in a way, that's normal and uh, perhaps universal. But at some point, we are going to have to either face ourselves or live with our life as it is on an ongoing basis, even though we're practicing or not practicing. So here's my way of getting at this in a, in a different way. And I want to start with a poem by Pablo Neruda. It's a very famous poem, and perhaps you've heard it. It's a bit long, and then I'll comment on it and go from there. So it's called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to 12, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea will not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars 
Wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers and sisters in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once we could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you will keep quiet and I will go. So I want to explore this poem. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. This uh, beautiful poem seems to be speaking of silence. But really much more is being implied and expressed. As a beautiful poem at its best can express. It's one reason poetry is such an important quality that is encouraged as an essential part of Zen training, both to study it, many of the chants we do are poems, Um, part of the training, usually later in in training, is to be able to express something via a poem, something that cannot be expressed in a linear, sequential, verbal, verbal manner. So, you know, this initial line, that line that brings us into this expression of reality, starts with, now we can count to 12, and we will all keep still. Isn't that familiar? (laughs) I mean, here we are, many of us, all of us starting with a breath-counting practice. And that is, I want to point out, that's not an initial practice. If you deeply invest on it, in it, you can't do it. I mean, the person you are that you came into this room as cannot do that practice. Something has to be let go of. And for some people, it's a big battle to let go because our accustomed way of feeling and thinking is so precious or so accustomed that we treasure that. And so it's not unusual for people to sit with their mind you know, not getting past two or doing it, but doing it in a perfunctory way, you know, getting, we use 10, but that's irrelevant. Um, and not much happening because we're, we're kind of stuck and neutral in our mind. And also we miss how important this is. This is the essence of the practice. What's happening now is the whole practice right now. And although the zazen of someone who's done zazen for years and decades is different than the zazen of someone who's just starting, the fundamental practice of intimacy is the same. And so you can look at it as a beginning practice, but it ain't beginning. 
It's the whole thing. Beginning, middle, end, beginningless, endless. So with just our breath, just with counting in and out of our breath, of being our breath, of following my breath, it's not the entry, just the entry point of Zazen. It's the point itself to engage and at some level be willing to let go of ourself when we're not engaged in the breath. And that's it. That's it. And part of being it is that when we see we're not engaged with the breath, that's the gold. The gold is, oh, I'm in la-la land. I'm in the, do you know you're in the world of suffering when you do that? But it doesn't help to label that. It's just what we are, what we do. So we let it go. And on one hand, you don't have to make a big deal out of it. On the other hand, it helps to, to see uh, the stories we have and where we get stuck in our thoughts because especially when Zazen goes a little deeper, we only have a few stories. And if we study them, they get pretty old pretty quick. And, uh, you know, it's not uncommon for people to come in to Dyson and say, I'm done with these stories, these fucking stories. I'm just done. I'm tired of them. You know, that may take a month or it may take 10 years, but, you know, that's your karma. That's your life. Um, and, and we're still not done, but we have a much deeper awareness of them and where our mind tends to go. And also, with a maturity and practice and acceptance of it, it's no big deal. It's just what our mind does. Um, and we shouldn't dispatch it. We should just let it go, you know, not attached by pushing it away and not attached by keeping it. Just let it be. And it's already gone. So we say, let it go and come back to one or come back to your breath. So do we know why we start with the breath? I mean, why do, why do we start with that? And Neruda gives us a clue. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. He's not just telling you to be silent. Nothing in this poem is about just shut up. He's, he's inviting you not to speak in any language, not to communicate. Why? In one sense, that seems very dangerous, very lonely, very selfish. That's from a deluded perspective. That's our usual perspective. And people struggle with that. You know, what will happen when I let go of myself? Well, no one's ever disappeared from the face of the earth doing zazen. Can't find them. They were sitting there earlier, but they let go of themselves and poof, away they went. It hasn't happened, at least to my knowledge. If you know of someone like, other than them running out of the zendo and down the street, then they've disappeared. Um, which as it does happen, because maybe we're not able, ready, maybe we shouldn't face ourselves. We all have different karma. What would it mean to not speak in any language? Is this only a reference to words, to ways of communicating? Or is this something much deeper than that? Not to speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. Or our body. Or our mind.
It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Do we know of this exotic moment without rush, without engines? Do we know? I think we get glimpses in our life. You know, the, the monastery has, in and of itself, represents that to me. But if you wander off into the forest, and this is unique, you not this is not unique to the monastery itself, but there are places in this country which are exotic without rush, without engines, and a sudden strangeness. To me it's a cemetery. You go into the cemetery and it is remarkable. That's where I want to be for the rest of eternity. Um, you know, you look up and you look down and there it is. Um I've encountered other places like that in the high desert of New Mexico and many other places that just exotic and a sudden strangeness. Not, not strangeness quite in the way that we usually use as distance, but strangeness that's ultimately more than familiar. That's home. That's what makes it strange, that we're home. Sitting together in Zazen, especially in a longer time period of Zazen, in a Zazenkai and a Sashen, we have time to settle in and just be. That too is a sudden, sudden strangeness. We can feel it. We are alone together, not on one side or the other. We're together and we're alone. And as Daito Roshi would say, alone, all one. And it's a simple body inhaling and exhaling, alive in our silence that, that breathes life, that is life. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the men gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green, war, green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers and sisters in the shade, doing nothing. What does it mean? What does it truly mean to do nothing? When our minds rest in stillness, What can be seen? What cannot be seen? When our minds are frantic with constant but unacknowledged activity, which is the default. Do we understand that all wars, all conflicts, all disagreements have no survivors? Do you understand that all this immense pain and death is caused by how we use ourself, meaning how we use our mind? I'm talking about your particular life, how you experience conflict, disagreement, war, judgment, politics, is all caused by our mind, how we use it. Do we understand war? Is it simply physical conflict? 
Is there war in our separation and the mind of confusion and judgment? Is there an undeclared war in how we judge and measure and think about others? You know, undeclared war, like the kind this country fights and has been fighting for decades. Perhaps we should go the way we should go get out of our way and just stop body and mind from moving. What would happen then? Just stop. What's said then is, what I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is about what it is about. I want no truck with death. Life is about what it is about. All suffering comes out of a refusal to accept what is. It's that simple. In this simple eloquence is the wholeness of our being. We wish to live. We wish to be alive. All of us want no truck with death. So clearly this is not a plea to just be silent. Something else is going on. Here we have our life. Life is what it is about. Single-minded about our movement, our energy, our progress, our wars, our politics, even perhaps ideas about our practice. And within this context, what would it mean to truly do nothing? Which does not mean inactivity and does not mean falling into doing or not doing. Do you understand? It doesn't go to one side or the other. It doesn't go to the side of judgment. And it doesn't go to the side, well, I won't have any judgments. Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. We have so many ways to be dead as our life. I mean, our our society is filled with death. Your death. We're encouraged. We're propagandized, we're manipulated, but it is we. We are excess, giving our permission to, to, to allow that to happen. And it's not that we can't, can prevent the information from happening, but we can not buy it. We can choose. We can be conscious of it. There's a pervasive sadness that I encounter often in practitioners, but I don't think it's in practitioners. I think it's pretty universal. And we cover it with frantic thought and activity, with a poisonous energy that masquerades as busyness and accomplishment, all in the name of searching for life satisfaction and happiness. And that's one of my laws of reality, that when you go after something, or think that the, 
So it's the law of unintended consequences. It's a variation of that. That when we think this is going to happen, often the opposite ultimately happens. And when you follow things over time, you see that. You get to see that. Does the hamster on the wheel endlessly running feel a sensitivity and a wholeness to its life? Do you? So what is this huge silence that can be interpreted as sadness? It's much more, or you could say much less, than the activity of Zazen, although that's certainly where we begin. Now I'll count to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. Jorge Luis Borges. I I wish I could speak with a Spanish accent because it's (laughs) musical. And when I say something in Spanish in my crappy Brooklyn English, it's dead. (laughs) But forgive that, please. On the other hand, when I curse, there's nothing like Brooklynese. (laughs) Uh, But Jorge said, don't talk unless you can improve the silence. You keep quiet, and now I will go. You keep quiet, and now you will go. That's us in. Now I want to switch gears. So we just explored what I think is a wonderful poem that points at something that's fundamental and important to practice. Now I want to give you a philosopher's perspective of silence. Quote, and by the way, I I found this quote, but I didn't note who said it. So I'm pretty sure it was some philosopher or academic, as you'll see, but I, I can't credit it. Not speaking, and speaking are both human ways of being in the world. And there are kinds and grades of each. There is the dumb silence of slumber or apathy, the silent silence that goes with a solemn animal face, the fertile silence of awareness, pasturing the soul, whence emerge new thought, new thoughts, the alive silence of alert perception, ready to say this, this, the musical silence that accompanies absorbed activity, the silence of listening to another speak, catching the drift and helping them be clear. The noisy silence of resentment and self-recrimination. Loud and subvocal speech, but sullen to say it. Baffled silence. The silence of peaceful accord with other persons and communion with the cosmos. Can you feel the distance? This has nothing to do with silence. Nothing. It's talking about silence. It's describing silence. It's putting it out there. It's categorizing it. It's left a few aspects of silence out, like silence. (laughs) And this is how our mind works. This is our mind. 
This is the tendency of our mind, the ordinary mind that we work with. And I bring it forth because this is, you know, this is kind of it, the world we're in. There's an intelligence here, a depth, an analysis, a comprehension. It's valuable in its own way. I'm not dismissing it. But from the perspective of spiritual practice, from the perspective of Zen, it has nothing to do with you. There's an enormous distance between you and it. And it's not easy to get this because we're so habituated to this, to using thought, to... It's not to preserve the distance. We don't even see the distance between ourselves and being. We experience that distance or lack of distance in tiny amounts. But unless it's cultivated, and we call that practice, then we don't really have a fighting chance, even if we know all this, even if we know everything I'm saying. And by the way, everything I'm saying is more (laughs) non-silence. But I'm doing the best I can to support us in this practice. One of the things that came to mind in, as I studied this description was John Cage's 433. As some of you may know that. So it's a piece of music written by John Cage, who was very heavily influenced by Zen, uh, at least by the ideas of Zen, uh, who was a famous composer, a modern composer. And the, the performer comes out, sits down in front of the piano, and for four minutes and 33 seconds, doesn't play a single note. And of course, the first time that happened, it was uh, not well received by, uh, it was in a famous place. And <laughs> what the heck just happened? But what, is, what was John Cage doing? Um, what, what was he asking us to do? You know, usually when we li- listen to music, and I love music, particularly non-ultramodern music, (laughs) which I guess I'm just too old to appreciate, but particularly classical music, but not just. Um, And I can listen in complete absorption. And if you ever get the chance to listen to a Beethoven or Mozart symphony while you're in Sashin, you're going to end up bawling on the floor. (laughs) Uh, at least that's my experience, the experience of others. I don't recommend that as a way of doing session, but it's happened a time or two. In any case, what was he doing? He was changing completely the relationship of how we listen, of what silence is, of the audience to the performer. He was changing everything. But what was he changing it to? What was he asking us of us in that piece so that's another perspective. I have another perspective to offer you. A koan. No surprise. And a very simple koan, which of course are the most difficult. And it's a koan I've given a talk on a couple of years ago, but I'm going to approach it from a different perspective. So the koan, it can be articulated in different ways, is stop a distant temple bell. So... Here's the setup for it. That's the whole koan. But here's the setup for it to make it available to us. You're sitting in a field. 
maybe 500 yards away, maybe there's a river between you and there's a temple and there's a temple bell. So it's well outside your access. You can't get there. There's a nice wind, the birds are chattering, you're comfortable sitting in the field, there are no ticks around. And um, um, it's fine. And the bell rings. Dong, dong, dong. You're sitting there. And the koan is, how do you stop that bell? And you can't, and this is working with a teacher on a koan, you can't go in and explain how you're going to stop the bell. And there is no explanation, right? You, you can't physically stop it. So the usual ways that you would think from an ordinary perspective of thinking, a dualistic perspective, aren't going to work. That's probably apparent right away, but people try it anyway. So the bell is ringing, and how do you stop it? What's absent within that ring, within that sound? What is not absent? What is present? To begin to see into the fundamental reality of your being, in this case represented by the koan, because each koan is inviting us to see into what is fundamentally real, beyond our thoughts about it, beyond our conditioning, beyond anything we know, beyond what we came in with today, beyond what we trust, beyond what we fear, beyond what we're uh, obsessed by. Let all that go. To begin to see into the fundamental reality, in this case, of sound, or of ourself, of our surroundings, we have to know, we have to really experience that that sound is empty. That sound has no thingness. The mind moves, it has thingness. This thought about it, that's the thing. The bell is empty. The sound is empty. When I say empty, it does not exist as a separate, independent thing, which is how we take things to be. We have to see for ourselves right here, right now, that the bell and the sound and you are empty of anythingness. Well, what does this mean? Is that a helpful question? What does it mean? Because it starts us down a path that will always end up in separation and, and distance. It's description. It's understanding. There's no meaning here whatsoever. Do you see that? No meaning here whatsoever. It's not about meaning. It is about seeing the non-thingness of each thing in sound, in bell, in hearing, in this body, in your form, and in your understanding. Well, that's a lot. Is it a lot? And it is all silent. 
What does stop mean in this context? Here's a hint. There's no deeper spiritual meaning veiled beneath the weight of thingness. I'm quoting a commentator on this going. There is no deeper spiritual meaning veiled beneath the weight of thingness, veiled beneath the bell or the sound. There's no deeper meaning to it. Do you, do you, can you hear that? It is not a thing. There's nothing further to regard. It is silent. There's no dualism whatsoever. There is no reductive one whatsoever. That's the other side. There's not two, me and the bell, me and the sound, and there's not one. It is silent. We've allowed each thing to drop, including self and other. What is left? In the context of the koan, stop that distant temple bell. What is left? Stop that distant temple bell. All is gone. Everything before, everything after. We can't speak of silence. So what is there? So I can say this word, silence, but it is not that. And if you came into Dyson and said silence, or were silent, or presented silence, that would not address the koan. What we find in this world, this world of mercy and tenderness and loss is something beyond precious and yet unimaginably unimaginably powerful, terrible and beautiful. And out of the silence where I truly am, what becomes visible in a manner that passes all our understanding and knowledge, is reality itself. This, and already I've said too much. Within the mystery of stopping the distant temple bell, really seeing that, finding that in the ways of silence, something mysterious and beautiful that holds our life and our death becomes visible. Silence and presence seem to intertwine. What is it? What is it? The mind, our mind, the sound, our ears, the bell, the presence of being, our cognizant awareness. And yet, there is no such thing. All those things, and yet there is no such thing.
in a way, and I'm using specific words here, it's a terrible and beautiful presence. Terrible because there is a sadness, and that is an important part of life. Beautiful because it is endlessly beautiful, as you and I are. A terrible and beautiful silence, which can and often is experienced as love. Love in its most fundamental sense. Thanks for listening. Do you have physical challenges to visiting Zen Mountain Monastery or Fire Lotus Temple? The Diamond Net is a group of Mountains and Rivers Order students who are available to support your practice. We provide Dharma and other support to Sangha members facing life challenges such as illness or mobility issues. If you would like to visit the monastery or the Zen Center but need some physical help, someone from the Diamond Net can assist you. For information, email diamondnet at mro.org or visit our webpage at zmm.org and look under the Programs menu.